Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. It was a very busy time where I was starting to get all these opportunities that I was so happy and grateful and excited for and ping-ponging around the globe and coming back to New York and doing all this stuff. But I was at my most miserable, for sure, for all kinds of reasons. I couldn't keep one person happy. I felt like everybody was not getting enough from me. I felt like I wasn't satisfying the people at the studio with their expectations of me being there. I felt like the teachers at the studio wanted more, more experiences or more opportunities that I felt like I couldn't give. And a lot of it was just in my own head. (laughs) So I was just such a mess. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Light Watkins Show with yours truly, Light Watkins. So if this is your first time here, I interview ordinary people just like you and me who have taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many others who have heard about their story, or who've witnessed them in action, or who've directly benefited from their work. And I met today's guest many, many years ago, back when I was invited to this converted crunch gym in the Soho neighborhood of New York City. It had been turned into what was called a Strala Yoga Studio, S-T-R-A-L-A, Strala Yoga Studio. And this was the first of what became a very popular new yoga platform that a visionary by the name of Tara Styles started with the goal of making yoga more accessible to regular people. Back then, in the sort of mid-2000s, yoga classes in New York City were $20, $25, even $30. And Tara wanted to make yoga donation, which she did for a while, and then keep it at a very low cost so that more people could be exposed to this practice that she ventured into from a dance career. And she also wanted to teach it in a way that wasn't intimidating. So Strala grew into this huge platform that now includes thousands of teachers, which she calls guides. She offers around-the-clock online classes, and it's being practiced in more than 100 countries around the globe. Tara has become a yoga thought leader in the process. She's become a teacher to many celebrities. She's authored several best-selling books, including her most recent book, which is called Clean Mind, Clean Body. Tara has been profiled by the New York Times, as well as the Times of London and several other major media outlets. And as always, she comes from humble beginnings. So we do a deep dive into her origin story, how she got into yoga in the first place, from dancing, and we talked about why she decided to open up a studio, which is a pretty big deal. What were the obstacles that she had to overcome in those early days? How was she able to build this studio? 
into a global platform? How did she start working with celebrities? We talked about when she got married and then how her marriage was on the ropes for a little while as soon as Strala started taking off and how she had an epiphany that led her back to her husband. And then she became a new mom herself and an entrepreneur. And we talk about all of that and where she is today. Anyway, I really love this conversation. I've been a huge fan of everything Tara has created for so many years. And I'm excited to finally get to sit down with her and unpack her journey. So without further ado, let us dive into our conversation with Miss Tara Stiles. Tara, thank you so much for joining my podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you and go deep into your story. My goodness, I'm excited to talk to you and I'm going to go deep into your story hopefully soon when we get a chance to chat more. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, I would love that. All right, so you grew up outside of Chicago. I believe it's called Morris, Illinois. Thinking back to little... Tara. Is that what they called you, by the way, when you grew up? Was that your, your nickname? Do you have a nickname, Tara? I didn't have a nickname until T. High school, I suppose. Yeah, some people call me T. Some people call me Smiles, like Tara Smiles, because I'm always laughing. <laughs> Tara Smiles. I like that. Tara yeah. Styles, Tara Smiles. <laughs> so thinking back to those earlier days, did you have any favorite toys or activities as a child? Well, I danced growing up. So that was my one and only thing. I did. We didn't really have a lot of toys, I suppose. We lived in in the woods, kind of in the middle of the country Mm -hmm. space all around. So I remember going out into the woods a lot and kind of playing with nature and sticks and throwing rocks into the pond and, you know, things like that. So lots of nature toys and then my body through dance. I can't imagine you had very many friends in the woods. I mean, was it just you and your brother or was there like a whole community of woods people? No, that was it. I mean, it was me and my brother, but he's four years older. So he would make these grapevine wreaths and then do all these crafty things. And I was just kind of on my own doing six in the water and kind of playing with flowers and weeds and things Mm -hmm. like that, waiting for deer to come by. (laughs) It wasn't a whole lot going on. Well, it sounds like a beautiful childhood as an adult looking back. Sounds wonderful. Your dad worked at the local power plant. I'm not sure what your mother did, but what were some of the philosophies and ideologies you remember your parents echoing to you and your brother as you all were growing up? Growing up, I kind of nicknamed my parents straight edge hippies because they they were super sober. They recycled everything. We didn't have a lot of money. So they always were finding these frugal ways to basically do everything. They built this passive solar home, all these kind of things that now I appreciate. But back then I wanted them to be a little bit more rock and roll. I was looking for the booze cabinet and the LSD and all that kind of thing. But they really were like that. They were very simple. You know, they sat on the floor. My mom had a garden on the weekends. We were, I don't want to say forced, but we were outside collecting garbage out of the ditches and things first outside of our own house, but then we would expand the perimeter a little bit and then take them to the recycling place and do that kind of a thing. Were they talking about, oh, you guys, we have to take care of the earth because other people aren't going to do it, or you have to always look out for the community or the environment or anything like that? 
Yeah, my or was mom it just was, through actions? You know, mostly through actions, which I didn't understand so much the communication of it. A little bit, my mom was kind of hippie-ish, power to the people, take care of the environment, grow your own food, take care of other people, you know, very much of service kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. But anytime I would ask questions, it would kind of be this, just do the action, just do the action kind of a thing, almost like stop talking, just go and pick up the garbage and be quiet, you know, or I remember I wanted a pair of designer jeans in sixth grade or something. And my mom just sewed on a fake label. You know, she kind of made it with her embroidery machine. <laughs> and I was so annoyed at it, but it taught me how to be creative and also frugal. And also that I really didn't want that pair of jeans. I just wanted the idea that I saw other people in my class having these things. There was some talk about the philosophy about it, but really it was much more just do it kind of a thing. Do you remember enjoying dance as a young person or is that something your parents thought you should try? And if you like it, then you'll stick with it. If not, you'll just go on to something else. It was all my idea. hundred percent. My mom said when I was two or something, I pointed at the TV, there was some girl in diapers, you know, moving around <laughs> and, and she took me to the local place. And I remember being pretty young and her telling me, if there's ever a day you don't want to go to this, we're not going again because this costs money and I have to drive you here. It's out of the way, those kind of things. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I got to travel a little bit once I got older to go to Chicago and a little bit around the US to learn from real dance teachers. And I just remember wanting to be dropped off and soak up the wisdom from these teachers. So it was really, I don't know where it came from, but it wasn't my parents' idea at all. What did you get from the experience? I'm speaking as a young person, not an adult looking back, but as a young person, what takeaways do you remember having in real time, whether it's about connecting with your body or just getting out of s'mores and getting access to these big cities and stuff like that? Like, What was the drive for you? All of it. I really remember this incredible feeling of being able to do something physically with my body, but then also equally performing that for people. We got to go to kind of silly things like perform at the local nursing home and for the VFW and things like that. And I always remember loving the reactions from the people that would watch. And I always remember loving after the performance, I would go and talk to some grandpa in a wheelchair and he would tell me something about his life and how I remind him of a, a granddaughter or something like that. And I remember those moments really using this thing that I was kind of proficient at and really loved. It really kind of lit me up and giving that joy to people in an audience. So I, I really remember that I'm here, they're there, but there's this thing kind of happening together. And that thing was what lit me up, I think, most. How did you know you were good at it? It was easy for me. And I remember feeling good at it in my small town. And also this feeling of, oh, when I go to these Chicago and all these other places, I'm not as good as everybody else, but I want to get out of here so I can go there and get better. So I was always 
kind of constantly frustrated from being good in this one place, but also really desiring to gain better direction and classes and techniques and be in that community of, of the people who really knew what they were doing with dance. As a sort of teenager, you just envisioned that was going to be your life. You were going to be a dancer. You can be a choreographer. You're going to go to London and Paris and New York and that whole thing. Oh yeah. That was the whole thing. I even signed up to take summer classes at the high school so I could graduate early and then take off and go to conservatory. And my whole dream was to just dance and fit into the dance world however I could, for sure. But you started doing some modeling in Chicago. That was so funny. Oh, geez. Yeah, that happened from a dance performance, actually. A woman Mm -hmm. that I'm still in touch with, Marie Anderson Boyd, she was working at Aria Models back in the day, and she started working for Ford later. They somehow got involved, but... She talked to me and she said, oh, you should come into my office and be a model. And I was so stupid. Like, literally, I had no idea even what that was. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> and she gave me this pitch about going to Europe to do the fashion shows and all these things. And I said, okay, great. But I really, I'm dancing and I want to dance and this is my thing. She said, well, you can go to Europe and try to fit into the fashion runway scene or... And I was leaning in for the oar. You can stay in Chicago and go to castings. And I'm thinking, what the heck is a casting? <laughs> and she said, well, it's very much not as cool as the fashion scene, but it's more commercial work. And you might make a little bit of pocket change or income or something. And I said, well, what's up with the income of this whole Europe thing? And she says, well, you don't have any money, but we will <laughs> we will fund you to go and then you'll have to pay us back. And I'm thinking, this doesn't sound good to me at all. So I'll take the casting route. So I kind of stayed and was learning to dance and dancing in some gigs here and there and taking myself to these castings and starting to book weird jobs, dancing around Sears, Target, commercials, being a goofball and getting some cash here and there. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, 
You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. You also got introduced to yoga when you were in Chicago, correct? Yeah, I got real lucky again, as we all seem to do (laughs) with our stories. But my ballet teacher, I was so grateful I didn't get into this ballet school that I applied to, speaking of rejection, but I just kind Mm -hmm. of went anyway. (laughs) I showed up and a few months in, they said, okay, you're obviously here (laughs) and you're trying really hard. So they let me stay. And my ballet teacher- That's impressive. You literally (laughs) just showed up and they let you do whatever they were doing and then they accepted you? I mean, I didn't have anywhere else to go. What was I going to do? My parents wouldn't let me just move to New York yet. I really wanted to go. So that was that's why the whole modeling thing was appealing, just to get a little pocket change and get myself there, whether it was on a bus or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, I just showed up and, and kept going. And I mean, I loved it so much. I didn't see any other opportunity for myself and my life to do. So yeah, my ballet teacher was in... To yoga in New York in the 70s when he was with American Ballet Theater. So mm-hmm. he brought in a real simple Hatha yoga instructor for Fridays, yoga for relaxation. And this was my first experience with the physical practice of yoga, for sure. And I remember being the only one in the group that was into it. All the other girls and some guys were laughing and thinking it was nap time. And like, you know, for dancers, yoga isn't challenging, at least in a simple class physically. So there's a lot of opportunity for just the giggles for sure. But I was Mm -hmm. completely feeling like this is my own spaceship and there's answers inside and I want more. And I'm so curious about all of this. And this instructor was happy and content and calm for no reason at all. Nobody was even paying attention to him and he was still happy, (laughs) calm. And I just wanted what he had inside. I wanted to access that for myself. And having that class was the beginning of finding that. And then at the same time, I felt that kind of, oh, why don't my parents talk about this? This is what they were talking about, but why weren't they doing this? And why isn't this kind of all over the place? What's going on? Why is this so secret in a way? I love that description of your yoga teacher. You said he had something that you recognized that you wanted. And that was my experience as well. When I met my meditation teacher, I didn't know, I didn't even have language for it at the time. I just, I didn't know I was looking for that until I met him. And then I was like, that's what I've been looking for my whole adult life, young adult life so far. So you kind of had a similar type of epiphany then? Yeah, it was a real same thing. Almost this is everything I've been looking for that I didn't even know I was looking for and also remembering it as well without knowing it, without learning it. I was also remembering that kind of strange feeling, almost like a dream. Like when you think a dream is real and you wake up that moment of, oh, that's really happening somewhere in some other place. But yeah, I felt all of these 
honestly, super exciting, but really overwhelming emotions. I remember my ballet teacher came out and like would put his hand on my head and be like, calm down, Tara. <laughs> it's going to be okay. And then he'd bring me the book. He brought me the book, Autobiography of a Yogi. And I thought, wow, what's going on? I read the book cover to cover. Somebody gave me a book. This is the first time somebody gave me a book that was a book that had meaning, had purpose, you know? So I felt very shaken up in a way. How did that contend with your dance ambitions? Because you still very much interested in becoming a top level dancer, correct? You didn't think to yourself, I'm going to be a yoga teacher now like this guy, because that's what he feels, what he makes me feel. Yeah. Honestly, I had no idea yoga was a job for anyone. I, I didn't, I, and nowhere in me did I assume that this guy was getting money to do this thing. I thought he was some sort of magical being beamed down for this very moment. And he probably was an accountant in his day life or day job or whatever, but it was not a, a career opportunity. I think the way that a lot of younger people now take a yoga class and it becomes a real, oh, people do this and this is a thing. So that was definitely not on the table for me at all. But I recognize in that moment, this is something that I want to take with me for my whole life to guide me, to direct me. This is everything. This is everything. What the heck? Why hasn't this been shown before? (laughs) You know, almost this, where's everybody been? Where has this teaching been? Why hasn't this been here all along? That kind of feeling. So kind of like drinking water for the first time. Oh yes, (laughs) this is going to be with me for forever. So yeah, I didn't have any ideas of doing this with other people really at all. Then you relocate to New York. That's where you got in, you had the request for the one-on-one yoga class. So talk a little bit about those earlier days now that you're starting to see that this could be something that you potentially get deeper into as a teacher. Yeah, so maybe similar to a lot of people once this washed over me, it was all I wanted to talk about. I was still dancing and doing mm-hmm. dance jobs and other jobs and things like this. But every time I would go to a dance job, I would talk to people about yoga. <laughs> every time I would go get something from the craft service table, I would talk to the craft service person about yoga because their back hurt or they were stressed out or whatever. So I was starting to share with people my understanding about what I had been learning from yoga But then also hearing back all the reasons why either people hadn't heard of yoga back then, because that was still kind of a thing, or the little bit that they've heard about yoga, and then all the reasons why they're not going to get involved with it. And then I would start spontaneously just showing them a few things that I thought would be helpful for them. So leading these little sessions kind of out in the world with people just to pass it along and help other people feel that awakening and that help physically and help mentally and emotionally. You described the feeling of after doing the one-on-one that you felt fully alive. I would imagine through dancing, you would also feel fully alive. So what would the differences be in you following your passion versus finding your purpose? So I would think about this with dance and my one kind of existential crisis with dance was always the separation between me on stage and the people watching. And I loved those moments of dancing for someone 
that really needed it in a way like the the people in the nursing home or the VFW people or those kinds of things. But the more professional I got, the more small the audience was, not in a size ways, but just more narrow the types of people. Sure, there would be students that couldn't afford to come and you could come for $10 or free if you were a student of dance, but most of the audience were wealthy donors and fur coats and things like this. So I was really starting to feel, oh, what's the point? And then it's over. It's done. You know, the show's over, curtain closed and you go home. And next week you come back and you do it again for somebody else in a fur coat and then the curtain closes. <laughs> but dance has changed so much since then. I mean, now there's video and now there's so much more, but that was really my one kind of emotional crisis with dance. And then when I, when I would share yoga with people, even one-on-one, I was feeling that connection again, that I felt when I was dancing for someone who kind of really wanted to be there and really got something out of it emotionally. When did you make the switch and what was happening in your life at that time when you made that switch, when you decided, okay, dance is, there's an expiration date on this and I'm going to go all in on the yoga. I don't think I had a date in the calendar or anything like that, but in New York, so many things can happen. You leave your house at six in the morning, you come back at eight at night, you could have done 85 things. So I remember back then I'd have my backpack on, I'd have my list of all the things that I needed to do today and I would go and do them. And then in the meantime, all these other things would happen. And I think I was leading yoga one-on-one with people, also doing dance gigs, also learning about the world, getting involved in all kinds of random projects here and there. I always knew that some job will have an expiration date. So I need to figure out some other kind of work here and there. And I still never thought yoga would be a job for me. And honestly, I didn't really want it to be something that I would need to collect my money for my rent because then I had to be good at it. And then I had to really do it in a different kind of a way. So I just love being busy and I would put the backpack on and go and do all of these things. And I think one day I just kind of looked at the income because at a certain point, people started giving me money for the one-on-one things. And I pushed it away for a long time again, because I had to work. If you take money for something, it better work. (laughs) So I said, I don't need this money right now. I can pay my rent doing my other jobs. So eventually I would take the $40 or the $60 for the one-on-one And then one person would say, oh, I have a friend with back pain or I have a friend with this. And then I was doing this from five in the morning to 9 a.m. before everybody went to their job. And then after work hours from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. So I had all these people and then I had my whole day to do other stuff. And I think it was, I just looked at my calendar and I said, okay, I'm earning now enough money doing this thing that I love doing. I can start doing a little bit less of the other things. So I think other things just started to fall off a little bit easier and yoga just became more of what I spent my time doing. Where were you practicing your personal practice? Were you going to a studio at the time or just doing it on your own or what? Yeah, everything. I mean, when I first moved to New York, this was 2000. So I went to Jiva Mukti once they asked me mm-hmm. to be in their performance. And I'm like, this isn't it for me. <laughs> I don't want a yoga performance. 
So I just like went home, you know, and then there wasn't anything else. I think there was Shiva Nanda. I went there once as well. It was very insular, which is cool. I felt like it, it to me, I grew up Catholic as well. I, I started to see the connections. If you're in this yoga community here, you're in, at least back then it felt like that to me, just overwhelmingly emotional. But if you don't feel like you fit in with this very specific group of people, it doesn't really feel right for you there. So you have to find a group of people that is exactly <laughs> you, which felt very boring to me. Everybody's a conformist of this yoga style that's supposed to be feel expansive. So I couldn't find any place because there weren't a lot of places, but I got lucky again. And I did this ad for crunch gyms <laughs> and you remember crunch gyms. And with the ad, they gave me a membership to the gym and they started to have yoga there at the same time. And they had four or five teachers there that were amazing. And they were all kind of doing their own thing. They were teaching yoga and it was awesome, but they were also being themselves. And that was the first mm -hmm. time that I had seen that at all, because I just saw the kind of old institutional, very extreme versions of what yoga has been expressed as in, you know, America. Who were a couple of your favorite teachers? Because I was in New York at the time doing yoga as well, like really into yoga at that time. I wonder if we had any of the same teachers. Okay. So there's this guy I've been trying to track down forever and I can't find him. His name's John C. You know how mm. everybody just had the last name C? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I want to call him and thank him and just find out where he is and how he's doing because he was the first yoga teacher that talked to people before and after class. And for me, I think I really needed that kind of not attention, like, how are you? What's going on? But just a hello, mm -hmm. welcome, how's it going? Just being a normal person. And he did that for me every time. And he did that for everybody else too. So that was really cool. And there was another guy, Michael V, same kind of thing. And he was this big kind of big, big guy. And this is the first time I saw a big guy lead yoga. And he invited me to Laughing Lotus when they were in the West Village. And it was this mm -hmm. room of like four people. So mm -hmm. I went there and I totally panicked though. I was like, you know, in my early 20s. So I went there. It was a snowy winter day. And I went up and there was only two people in class, which back then, like having a big class was not a thing at all. So, but I just felt excited and embarrassed and overwhelmed. And I did the class and they were so nice. They invited me afterwards to like come in the back for tea, but I was like, oh, sure. I'll come back. And then I just put my shoes on and rat and like <laughs> ditched out because I was so nervous. It was like too much. I was too excited. So yeah, those are the two. And then I met Amy in Polity. And she was leading a teacher training. And this was the first time I heard of that as well. And she literally handed me a flyer that she had made from Kinko's or whatever and said, hey, you mm. should come to this teacher training program. And I'm thinking, wow, you do this for a job. That's interesting. And yeah, I went to her teacher training program. But everybody in that program, again, was much in a different life stage in their, in their 40s and 50s. And I was there and very much feeling again, embarrassed and overwhelmed and excited and just, you know, like a little kid around all these people who had come to yoga after all of the things had kind of happened in their lives and yoga was coming in to kind of save the day. So it was a strange time for me, but, but really cool. Talk about meeting Mike at that retreat and what happened after that. 
Oh yeah. So this was fun. A friend of mine who I met in that teacher training program introduced me to Dharma Mitra and Krishna Das. And I kind of super fell in love with Krishna Das. Again, just such a normal feeling person. And I loved that kind of realness about how he talks about everything. And there's just something about who he is. It makes me feel like you know, he could be an uncle of mine or a relative. I think a lot of people kind of feel that way with him. So he was doing a retreat at Ananda Ashram upstate, which when you go, I don't know if it's still there, but it looked like the scene of a horror movie. <laughs> you know, like just I mean, the word wellness wasn't a thing back then. There were just these ramshackle condemned building places <laughs> that we were all getting together and doing these things and trying to figure stuff out. So I went to this weekend retreat over Easter weekend, stayed in the bunk beds, the whole thing. There was a woman staying below me who was checked in and having some mental health issues and was really disturbed for the whole time. And so that was a little bit scary to me in a way. And I remember kind of being a little bit of a punk about it. I snuck in my bag M&Ms and was like taunting people with my M&Ms, <laughs> just being, you know, kind of naughty or whatever, but I, I just felt like there was so much strangeness at these places still. And then I remember kind of seeing Mike across the room and he was the first guy that I saw that felt to me not lost in a way, in a bad way, not kind of completely checked out, you know, present in his life, in his body. And I remember being in my body feeling like, oh crap, that's the guy I'm going to marry. And I don't know if I'm done having fun yet. <laughs> so it kind of ended up, we found each other and talked a bit and chatted. And, you know, I'm in the back hanging out with this guy cooking the desserts for everybody named Hanuman. And I'm like, Hanuman, tell me what's the deal. Like, how'd you end up here? And he's like, well, I used to work at the Renaissance fair. <laughs> now I'm here at this ashram. And I'm talking to this other guy that lived there who was on heroin. And then he ended up living there and building this extra building. And I'm just trying to find out what's going on at this place and who are these people and, and how can this be not an escape from life, but part of a real life. And I was just looking for those answers. And then when I saw Mike, I just felt like, oh crap, he seems like he's doing these things, but he's also living his life, which I thought was kind of cool. So how soon after that did you all end up getting married? Pretty quickly. We had one of those coffee dates that lasts all day. You know, mm -hmm. I think that was in the age of like the razor flip phone. Do you remember like when you would yeah, text yeah, yeah, people yeah. and you'd, you'd be like, push the button 25 times. Three times to, to get to the yeah. sea. <laughs> yeah. Well, I gave him my phone number and he texted me and asked me if I wanted to go see I think it was a performance of Swan Lake at ABT. And I'm like, no guy buys tickets to the ballet for a girl. That just doesn't happen. So I just thought he was goofing on me. So I just didn't respond at all. And then finally, he kept texting. And we ended up having a coffee at Cafe Gitan for like 10 coffees for me. And it was one of those things where we both kind of said, okay, how long should we wait? to tell our friends and family that we're going to get married. <laughs> wow. So he had the same feeling about you then. Yeah. 
I've never had that before. What does it feel oh, like? I, I mean, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. <laughs> I mean, still, I don't like it at all. I mean, it's good. It's great. And he's amazing. And I totally love him. But for me, and I think for him too, it was this, oh crap, this is really amazing and useful. And this is my family member. And this is the person that I'm going to be around and have fun with and do things with the person that I trust with everything. And maybe I just had been in so many other kinds of relationships where I felt like I was thriving (laughs) and having fun and more being the I guess the one in control or the one that felt like I can leave this person whenever I want, I can go have fun, I can go do my thing and and all of that, but but this definitely felt different. It didn't feel like any of the descriptions that I hear other people talking about, you know, being in love and all of these things. It just felt very much like, oh, I'm kind of like the first time I did yoga. I hadn't really thought about that before, but this kind of, whoa, (laughs) Mm. where did that come from? Not in this euphoric kind of a sense, but almost this whack on the back of the head kind of feeling. So what was your mental state like at that time? This is just before you get on this roller coaster called Strala Yoga. What were you feeling inside about yourself? Did you feel successful? Did you feel accomplished? Did you feel like you were still lacking in certain areas of your life? I felt excited to be doing things for sure. This was kind of a stage in my life where I was meeting a lot of people in different industries and really trying to get involved with anything that I could get involved with that was creative and fun and maybe had a little bit of a yoga angle or health angle. But I remember meeting a guy who was interested in yoga and then he came across all these old Andy Warhol movies from Mm -hmm. this woman who was in one of the movies and no one had ever seen them. So I thought, well, this is really cool. Maybe I can help you put them together and we can go around and meet people and fundraise a little bit. And maybe I can be behind the scenes, help you get your movie made kind of thing. (laughs) So I thought that was really cool and interesting just being in a room and watching those films. And only in New York, you can kind of meet somebody for one thing and find out all these other things. So I was doing all kinds of things. And also I was meeting through modeling people like us that were doing other things besides getting their picture taken. I mean, how stupid is it to just get your picture taken? So, you know, you sit around at a casting and I would meet somebody and and talk with them and say, well, what do you, what do you really like to do besides just looking how your face looks? (laughs) And, And, you know, sometimes they would just go and sit on the other bench because they thought that I was being rude or whatever, but I was just being curious. But I met a lot of people who were interested in fitness or interested in clothing or interested in nutrition, all of these kinds of things that are so common now. So I was kind of thinking about putting a bunch of people together in a van and making some sort of show where we go to somebody's house and fix them up in a kind of way and thinking about those kind of things. Just how can I create opportunities that I get to be involved with that help people in this kind of well-being way, but maybe it's not necessarily doing one thing or, or another thing specifically. So you all decide to start this yoga studio later that year after getting married. 
according to you, your parents don't have a whole lot of money. You're doing these like odd jobs. I mean, what, how, how is that? What were you thinking? <laughs> In New York City, how are you going to start a yoga studio on yeah. a budget? I mean, thankfully, back then, there wasn't really much to look up to. I mean, there were these big institutions where I would have in my mind that somebody must have just bought them that building because the building is there and it's never going away. So I started in the, in Central Park. I sewed up a flag that just said free yoga in the park and everybody would come if they wanted to come or not. And Where was it in the park? It was by the castle, the pond with the castle. I'm forgetting what it's called. Yeah, so it was just by there. the theater, by yeah, the outdoor by the theater. theater. Yeah, yeah. 72nd so that, Street, walk in from the West Side. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really fun. And I met a lot of great people through that. And mm. Mike had this pretty oddly shaped rental apartment on 23rd and 5th. It was kind of a cut up weird building. Mm -hmm. And it was this big living room that you could fit 20 people in and then a little bedroom off to the side. So I remember the first time I went over to his apartment, I was like, this is a great space for yoga. Mm. <laughs> so when it got cold outside, we just moved it inside and that became the Strala Yoga Studio because, you know, you have to have a name, I suppose. So that mm. became the studio for quite a long time, probably way past when we should have been doing things <laughs> there without permission. <laughs> you never had any problems with the building management or with park rangers or anybody like that coming up no. to you saying, hey, what are you doing? Do you have a permit for this? Yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't mass scale. So in the park, it was just the flag and I didn't put it in the ground or anything. Like I had Mike and another friend, Sydney, they held it up in the beginning and we had a Facebook page. It said, just come here if you want to do yoga. And then mm -hmm. when the class started, we just leaned the flag on a tree and people would come. So it was just a group of, you know, 20 of us or whatever. Doing Those it. were the village voice classified days. Do you ever put yeah. an ad in, in the village voice? <laughs> totally. That's how you, that's how you found out stuff. And Craigslist was just getting started too. Yeah. Craigslist. When I started doing yoga with people more and more, one of the people I did yoga with one-on-one -on -one said, you should put an ad on Craigslist. And I did for like a minute. And then I got kind of nervous and took it down. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You're going to somebody's house. You know, you never know. You're fine. I know you guys became known as the studio that made yoga affordable in New York. Was that the intention from the very, very early days? Did you do these five and $10 classes? I think like a lot of people, I wanted yoga to be accessible, but not just affordable, but also accessible and how you do it, you know, in an easygoing way. But yeah, it was free for a long time, even at Mike's apartment. And then it kind of mm -hmm. became this thing where, again, I was doing other jobs. So it didn't need to be how I paid rent and things like that. But people would say, Hey, you know, I'll pay five, $10 to come here just to sustain what you're doing. So you'll continue doing it and not get annoyed and stop doing it. <laughs> so we eventually, you know, had a donation. We said, you can pay five or $10 if you want, if you don't want to, that's fine as well. And then we just kept doing it and everything started to be okay. So I started this thing called The Shine in Los Angeles. And for the first several weeks or maybe even months, it was free. I decided to start charging for it to help pay for stuff. And I noticed a difference in the percentage of people actually showing up and staying and blah, blah, blah. So I'm just curious for the young entrepreneur out there listening to this, what was your experience with charging versus not charging? 
Did you notice anything noteworthy? Oh, big time. So not charging. I thought, okay, this is the kind of person that loves to do yoga with me. They're the same kind of person that asks if they can sleep over and crash <laughs> in the apartment, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a person without any boundaries. They, they really aren't going to leave. This is that kind of person. They have a house, they have the means, but they just kind of want to stay forever. And it could be yoga. It could also be drawing or canoeing. It doesn't matter what it is because it's just something free to do. (laughs) So I started to realize, okay, this is the person that is coming here. And then when we started to make it a small fee, it changed for the better hundred percent. The people that came really wanted to do yoga They didn't just want to do something that was free because you can do that everywhere. You can look at the village voice and there's all this free activities to do. So cost wasn't an issue. It wasn't that we were getting super wealthy or super, you know, students or people that couldn't afford, but those things weren't in common. But what was in common was everybody wanted to do a yoga class in this way. So the crowd became more diverse in the kinds of people, but everybody had this one thing super solid in common, which didn't exist when it was free. You and Mike co-founded Strava. So talk a little bit about that. What was that like? Because you're newly married and now you have this business you're sharing. Are you guys like cuddling up at night and then talking about work or <laughs> how did you separate that? Was it intentional? Like what are, what are some of those takeaways? I think for me and probably for him as well, This is so much of what I think about all the time that I can't imagine having a work buddy and then coming home to my partner or whatever. So it just made sense for us, for sure. It was kind of a, well, we're doing this and let's go and do it. And there's no switch that we flip at this time. And now we're our normal selves doing our normal things, going off and raging or whatever is kind of all the time thinking about these things, thinking about how we want to spend our energy and just moving forward in that. You also began to write prolifically. So talk about how that affected your movement that you were starting. Yeah. So again, I got lucky. A gal that came to the studio worked at Huffington Post, which at the time was a super only political blog. At least that's how I saw it. And she headed up the health section and she said to me, oh, would you like to take some of your videos that you're posting online and write a little article about it and post it up on our blog? And of course I said yes, because she thought this would be a good idea for me. So I started sharing these posts on Huffington Post and making these little articles about how yoga can be for all kinds of different things. So I, I kind of found this yoga for this, yoga for that, yoga for this, <laughs> you know, step and repeat kind of a thing. So yoga for breakups, yoga for back pain, yoga for headaches or whatever. You were known as one of the first yogis to do this, right? This is before yoga with Adrian, and you know, you were yeah. one of the first ones to use social media in this way as well. Yeah, I just I found out about YouTube and I'm a big ham. So (laughs) I'm thinking I've got these friends back home that they're starting to have all their first problems. And I'm meeting people in New York and they have all these problems and not everyone's going to walk into a yoga studio that they care about. 
and not everybody's going to want to click on a video that says yoga. So I found all of these things, like what's the issue here? And, and also I found out when I was talking to people, nobody wanted to do yoga, but people wanted to feel better in their bodies, feel better in their lives. Everybody has their list of problems. And the more you ask questions, the more problems people will tell you they have. And yoga, at least the way I was understanding it, is so rich in its vocabulary that, of course, a five-minute video isn't going to solve your problem, but it'll start to give you some hints and some clues into what's happening with you. So for me, it was just super exciting and off to the races. You know, I'd get little messages from people saying, ah, I did this video. I feel better. I'm like, yay, good for you. (laughs) You So it was fun. Were you in the Broadway studio at this point when that HuffPost person, uh, editor came to the class? No, that was still in Mike's apartment. Okay. Yeah. How did she find out about it? She found out about it, I think, from her friend, Emily, who was just on Facebook, not even a friend of mine or something, but just one of these kind of natural friend of a friend of a friend of a friend sharing kind of, oh, I went to that. You should come to Mm -hmm. that too. And that was kind of the beginning of real life word of mouth, but then also Mm -hmm. Facebook word of mouth because everybody on Facebook has 50 friends, 100 friends, whatever, that also live in the neighborhood. So mm-hmm. that was that was happening. And when these people were coming, I had no idea, as it happens a lot, what people do for their job unless they say something, which for me is just a lot also more interesting just to talk about what's going on with you, how you're feeling, what's happening. And then you find out later, oh, I work for HuffPo or I'm solving the climate crisis or whatever. <laughs> so. What kind of reputation did you want your classes to have when people were sharing about it word of mouth? Because I know this probably came up in your teaching. You seem to be anti you know, Sanskrit and all that and making it accessible as possible. But what did you want people to say about, hey, I just took this class and it was dot, dot, dot. My dream response would be, I just took this class and I feel so good. I feel like myself. It's yoga at least back then, it doesn't sound so relevant now because there's so much, but back then it's yoga, but without all that stuff you don't like about yoga or it's yoga, but you get to continue to be yourself. You don't have to try or pretend something else about yourself. And then at that time, everybody knew what you were talking about. Like, oh yeah, yeah. I'm not going to go there because that place made me feel like I couldn't relax. I couldn't be myself. I had to fit into this category, fit into this box. Yoga was very serious in New York back then, even in the gyms. I went to Equinox and I remember, and I didn't know any different. I just thought this is what yoga is. No one played music. It was very serious. You know, there's this guy named James Brown. Did you ever go to any of his classes? James Brown. There were a couple of James Browns, but the one in New York, he was the one that kind of introduced me to my first meditation circle. And I I really liked him a lot, but looking back, it was very serious. And I think that's just what people thought yoga needed to be in order for it to be properly considered yoga. Yeah, definitely. And I'm fine with that. I'm fine as a participant going to that, but also like you, I saw all the issues with that as well. Not just the seriousness of it, but what people can do with that power when they have the serious attitude. You know, I saw a lot of people taking advantage of other people in classes and just with this kind of social power trip kind of a thing, almost a class category, like I'm here and you're here and 
or I'm going to push you into this pose or being somebody who's pretty capable physically, I would be called to go into the center of the room and do a backbend and everybody would clap for me. And then I feel so stupid. (laughs) I just felt embarrassed, you know, and I didn't learn anything except is that really what we're doing here? I used to find that so weird when people would clap after (laughs) someone did a pose and it was just like, what are we doing here? This is crazy. So did you get any pushback from anyone when they saw that? Oh, wait, she's not calling it chaturanga. And how did you deal with, with that? Yes, absolutely. So I was so protective and excited because everybody that came to take a class with me was like, oh, thank you. I've always wanted to do yoga, but I didn't go because this or that, or this person made me feel bad, or this person injured me or whatever it was. Everybody had their yoga horror story Mm -hmm. that that was Mm -hmm. coming to me. And then all my yoga friends, whether it was to my face or via a very serious email, (laughs) like, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) Firing it off. And I knew that my friends and the yoga community would be riled up by what I was doing because I was essentially by doing what I was doing without even saying, I don't like what you're doing was also saying, there's a different way that you can do this and help people feel like themselves while they're doing this yoga thing that you love too. And now that I have like many years from that kind of punk feeling that I had was so many of those teachers it's not their fault they were having me come up in the room and clapping because they were taught that by their teacher and they were taught that by their teacher and they just didn't think, oh, I don't want to do this this way. But I didn't kind of buy into this. It has to be like this. So I thought, well, why can't it be better? Why can't anything be better? So yeah, there was a lot of angry people coming at me for sure. But now they're all my friends again, so it's fine. <laughs> well, it also kind of helps you find your own voice as well. In my experience, it took me about five years to find my voice and to stop parroting my teachers and you know whatever else I heard or read regarding yoga. What would you say led to you finding your voice the most? Was it your writing or was it just volumes, just teaching class after class after class or a little combination? Yeah, I think all of it. And then reluctantly watching Mike move in my class and then eventually hearing Mike talk about Tai Chi and in the movement, because then once I started learning about his whole background of why he came to yoga and started to give me actual language besides, I don't like that, or just do it this way. You know, all these kind of immature language (laughs) that I've had my whole life into soften, allow your breath to move you move well, like this kind of a really clear, concise language, because that leads to you feeling like yourself that leads to feeling good in your body that leads to choosing to move in a way that respects yourself. All of those techniques lead to the feelings that I was trying to get at. So if I look at a class of my own in my head 10 years ago, I wouldn't be horrified at it, but I was kind of trying to lead the endpoints of the feeling like just if it doesn't feel good, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of now I know how to get people 
to do what feels good by leading them step-by-step how to do it in a way. So I think it was very useful for that time in my life, but also that time in maybe just the people that were coming and what they wanted and needed. And thankfully, hopefully I'm getting better. (laughs) So at this point, I'd love to hear how you knew it was time to really commit and get that larger studio. And what was your vision before you took that leap of faith? What was your vision for you and for Strala and and everything you were creating? Yeah. So I think the first time I met you, we were in that crunch gym space. Yeah. No, 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 no. I met you. I met you right as you guys moved into the new Broadway space. Yeah. So we were at 623 Broadway and then we moved over to 632 Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. Okay. Yeah, I think you came in with Tracy like a lot. That's right. Long time. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Just, That's just right. to say hi. In 2007. Around. Yeah. We were just sitting around knitting and mm-hmm. <laughs> weirdos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Tracy Curry. Was, yeah. Yeah. So that was a month to month space. And that space was awesome because that's where I had learned yoga too. That was the old crunch gym building. Mm. And it was just an abandoned building. And there was literally grass coming up in the shower. And <laughs> the landlord just said, fine, you can have the fifth floor. And it wasn't even that expensive, but we didn't have access to bathrooms or anything at all. So there was a space across the street that was beautiful. And a friend of ours that was coming to classes that had real estate experience said, oh, you should try to get a legit space. And I'm like, well, why would they give me a legit space at all? So, well, you can pay the rent, but also I think that the landlord kind of likes yoga and things like this. And he'll probably like what you're doing. It's an office building, but just go in and check it out. And it was one of those situations where the landlord it was kind of like the soup Nazi. Either they like you or they don't. (laughs) (laughs) You don't ask too many questions. Yeah, exactly. Because he was one of these old New York landlords that was going to be afraid if there was a bunch of stinky hippies coming around. (laughs) Mm. So I had to like go in and, oh, this is very serious. And we're very nice people. And we clean the bathrooms and all this stuff. So, So yeah, we got ourselves a legit lease at 632 Broadway. So it was on from there, but we made it really simple. We still just brought the couch over and our friend, Adam Gordon, who helped us get the lease, helped us, you know, put in a wall for a changing room, but that was it. It was just kind of a white box and I wanted to keep it really simple so people could feel their own experience without feeling this impression of something the space was putting on them. Did you think if I build it, they will come, the Deepaks and the Jane Fondas and these kind of people will come? Or were you kind of shocked or surprised by that? Everything was already going in that direction. So I wasn't too worried about it. I mean, I kind of did the math on the classes and then the rent and some workshops we were leading. And I'm like, okay, like it'll it'll work out. It'll be fine. So I knew that would be okay. But at the time, Jane had been to the studio across the street where I met you. And I had met Tao Prashan Lynch at that time too. And she was 92 years old. And I just met Jane who was 72. And I really wanted to introduce them because I'm like, Jane, this could be your mother. <laughs> you know, like, I should hang out. So we did this class and Tao taught and Jane came and Jeanette Jenkins happened to be in town. And it was just so cool. Everybody just kind of showed up, not for me, but for 
the people and the experience of being there. So we were already having these kind of exciting moments at the studio. Our Saturday class was exciting. So there was a few moments that I knew that if we commit to paying a good amount of money every month, that will be okay. I want to talk about something that you put in your book. So I'm not just being nosy, <laughs> but <laughs> run, running a business obviously puts you a little bit, probably more in your masculine than maybe you want to be. I don't know, but there's a lot of boring stuff and you have to be very consistent and it doesn't lend itself to so much freedom as much as freedom as, as we sometimes like when we myself included are in our feminine. Right. And you eventually got to a point where you decided this marriage is not working for me. And I'm curious what aspects of your professional life were influencing or impacting your personal relationship with Mike? Just kind of walk us through what you were thinking at the time. Jeez. Well, like, I mean, I was a mess <laughs> for sure. And I remember talking to you and, you know, you have this way with people where you kind of come in and you have like the little feather bop on top of the head. <laughs> you do that thing. And I don't even know if you're aware of that, but then people go off and they think about things in a different way. But one of the times when you came up to me and you just sat down and you looked at me and you just, I, I don't know what you said, but the feeling to me was, cause that was during that time in my life was what are you doing? And you just probably were saying like, how's your day? Like, What are you having for dinner? But like your energy to me said, what the heck are you doing with yourself? You're running around, you're busying yourself, you're getting all of this external attention. What's happening? What's happening with you? What's, what's the plan? And to me, it was a very busy time where I was starting to get all these opportunities that I was so happy and grateful and excited for and ping-ponging around the globe and coming back to New York and doing all this stuff. But I was at my most miserable for sure for all kinds of reasons. I couldn't keep one person happy. I felt like everybody was not getting enough from me. I felt like I wasn't satisfying the people at the studio with their expectations of me being there. I felt like the teachers at the studio wanted more, more experiences or more opportunities that I felt like I couldn't give. And a lot of it was just in my own head. <laughs> so I was just such a mess, but everything on the outside was growing and expanding and doing Tara all smiles. Tara smiles. And, and also, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I put this in the book, but it kind of goes along with it. So I had scheduled everything. So I was in Moscow for a photo shoot and a, and a Reebok event. And I think it was for the cover of Russian yoga journal or something ridiculous. And then I said to Mike, meet me in Paris and we'll make a baby. And then we'll, I'll fly back to New York and teach at the studio. And then I have to go to the Maldives for something, whatever. So he did, he met me in Paris and I got pregnant and then we went back to New York and did all the things. And I had a miscarriage eight to 10 weeks later, something like that. And that was the beginning or a continuation of just, okay, everything is horrible. Everything is not working. Just what am I doing? What's the plan? What's happening? And not slowing down enough to 
figure out that I can't just schedule in a baby. <laughs> okay. So you left Mike, mm-hmm. you left Mike. And then you realized that being with Mike wasn't the real issue. There was this kind of burnout thing that you were experiencing where you were burning the candle at every end possible. So what did you realize? I think this is important to talk about because I'm, I think now people are, a lot of people are struggling in their relationships and in their marriage. And they oftentimes think it's the other person that's the problem. So let's talk about what you realized in that period before you guys reconnected in Paris. You did, you actually did mention that in the book. You said that, you know, you're on this flight from Tokyo and didn't know where you were going. And that was kind of like your rock bottom moment. And that's where you realized it's not really about Mike. It's what I'm putting myself through. Can you just articulate that? I'm sure you can do it better than me. I just was doing everything to reach my no goal goal. I didn't have a goal of making something happen. My goal was literally just to be busy so I didn't have to deal with myself. (laughs) That was literally my goal. If I can just say yes to everything, I'll be so busy and I'll get enough attention to stay positive. I can still, I was doing yoga and I was feeling good because you do yoga and you get enough of a little hit to feel better. But literally looking back, especially my goal was not a very clear minded thing. It was the goal to stay on the airplane and continue moving around. I mean, I felt more comfortable on a flight than I did on land because I was in transit to somewhere else away from myself. So yeah, it was a big issue for me. Getting busier, at least for me, was the hardest thing that I've ever been through. Not being successful, at least for me, is so much easier. (laughs) So I needed to just slow down and I probably could have done all of those things and been less busy in my mind if I did it better somehow. But for whatever reason, I didn't handle it very well in my own experience. And I was just completely running away from myself. So when you reconnected with Mike, what was different in your relationship? Because I know you've also said relationship with others reflects relationship you have with yourself. So did something shift in you or did something shift in the dynamic or both? I think Mike's always been Mike. I don't think there was a problem (laughs) with him. I think I just needed some time to realize how ridiculous I was being with myself for sure. But I think I had this idea of just slowing down, slowing down, slowing down. And the irony is I've been teaching this to other people for so long. You know, you say the things and I thought I had, oh, I'm definitely slow down. Look at my yoga practice. I'm slow down. <laughs> but that was my thing. I needed to slow down, notice what was going on with me and then responding. So I could not be a big idiot out in the world and be less of an idiot and hopefully use my energy for good again. So mm-hmm. I think I slowed down enough to notice that there wasn't a problem with him and he was still there waiting and we reconnected and things became much better really quickly. Is that what you meant when you said the strongest version of you is the soft version of you? Yeah. Again, something I learned technically from the practice of Tai Chi, but I didn't learn that from being busy in my 
busiest time. I thought, oh, the strongest version of me is just going and doing and going and doing and going and doing. (laughs) And soft is for when I'm on vacation or when I have a moment to just relax at the end of the day or collapse onto the hotel bed. And then Mm -hmm. I realized through movement, through the practice that moving in a busy way doesn't get you as far as moving in a soft way. So I, I think I needed to learn that in my physical experience before I was able to understand it in all of my life. So shifting back to the studio, you ended up creating a thousand guides teaching in a hundred countries, which on paper sounds like a lot of work. And I'm curious, was it more work than being on the ground, you know, doing these classes? Like how did your relationship to your own work change and evolve over the years with having an even bigger impact? I don't think it's changed. I feel like now that there's more people doing yoga in a way that I feel connected to, I feel like it's easier now. In the beginning, when I was leading and Mike together, these Strala workshops and trainings, and we were I didn't feel like we were creating guides. It felt like people wanted to lead in this way for their own places, but yeah, on paper, like creating guides. So in the beginning, even people that would come and sign up would say, okay, you're saying to be easy in the position, but what if I just tense up a little bit? (laughs) So there was a lot of effort in explaining how to move well, whereas in now there's more people doing it. So it's easier. There's more support. There's more just in the yoga and wellness community in general, taking care of yourself instead of being forceful in yoga is a more common thing than it was even five, 10 years ago. To scale to that magnitude, you have to let go of some things. What was like the hardest thing for you to let go of? What do you mean to let go of? You know, like you have to let go of quality or you have to let go of trying to manage everything or making sure everyone's doing what you think they should be doing or (laughs) social media, the branding or something. Oh yeah. All that. So yeah, I let go of all of it. (laughs) Cause you were a mom too. You had a, you had a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So in my busy period, it's like an artist, right? In my busy period, we got this partnership that I thought was amazing. It was a gym chain in Europe and they wanted to put Strala and all the schedules, but they wanted to do it in this very inorganic way where I would go and train these people who were instructors of 10 fitness modalities. And this was the worst thing that ever happened to me because I had to go in and teach these people that were happy to be there because then they could get another class in the schedule, but they really didn't care if they were doing this or they were doing Zumba or they were doing whatever. So eventually enough instructors lived in the area. And I said, why don't you just hire those people and let the people who are there do it if they want to do it, but don't force them to kind of do it. So all the people coming to our trainings really wanted to be there. So there was a few, I think, itchy periods in the beginning where, you know, it would get a little bit like people were telling on each other, this person's not doing it like this. (laughs) And again, that's probably a reflection of me being like, not very clear of what's happening in the class, but that doesn't happen anymore. And everybody's learning and growing. And there's enough instructors all around the world and enough partner studios. And people feel comfortable that they can do this method of moving well, but also be themselves within that. So that's really, if I wanted to do anything, it was that. 
So yeah, of course it took me a lot of letting go to get there, but I think like the big letting go isn't just me doing a better job of teaching well and explaining and showing how to progress in doing the yoga and also leading it to other people. And you've done a ton of partnerships and collaborations. So what are some of the takeaways? Because you said you mentioned that other one was a nightmare. What are some of the takeaways that you've learned over the years about securing and maybe maintaining partnerships that feel aligned? Oh, gosh. Well, a favorite one of mine was W Hotels. And this is one of those things where when I first started the business, I got the Starwood credit card because I was staying in standard hotels because they were a little bit cheaper or just like a motel eight or whatever when I traveled. And then I said, well, if I could stay in W, that's inspirational to me, but it's expensive. So I would have it on points or whatever. So two girls came to the studio and they happened to work at Starwood and they said, oh, it'd be really cool to do something with you. So I just came in and there was no plan to do anything. And I said, I've always had this idea where if you're in a hotel, you guys have TVs in all the rooms. Can we just do a video of yoga for the morning? <laughs> like all the classic things, but do it in the way that makes sense for W. And then if you want, you have all these beautiful hotels. I could show up and do something in each city. Or if I'm in town, because I happen to be in town often for a training or an event or something else, let's do it. So it became really a collaborative project. And that was one of my favorite partnerships so far. I'm still friends with everybody who work there. And a lot of them have moved on and they work at other places now. And I'm friends with their spouses and our kids are friends. And I just hung out with one of the gals who moved to Berlin. She's working there for another hotel brand. So I might do some work with her. And I think my biggest takeaway is people are people everywhere. And if it makes sense to do something together, the together thing is the thing instead of me getting a job or me being elevated by this brand. I'm thinking, how can I help this brand if this brand makes sense for me do something that will help more people or excite more people or be fun for people? Well, your most recent book is Clean Mind, Clean Body, which I thought was super accessible. And you and Jordan Peterson, you know who he is? Yeah, yeah. You guys have something in common, What's which that? is you're, you, you're advocates for making up your bed in the morning. <laughs> Why do you suggest that people make up their bed in the morning? Oh my gosh, that's so silly. I used to not to, <laughs> for sure. I, I mean, I used to not to do a lot of these things that we learned to do, but it was, I don't know, I probably read it somewhere and then just started doing it and then noticed, oh, geez, this silly little thing has changed my whole life. But really, it's this, <laughs> I'm out of bed now. I'm not going back in. <laughs> I'm going to make you up and you're going to be there. Thank you for letting me rest. And it's time to move on with the day. Talk about your daily routine a little bit. You go into great detail in the book <laughs> and you offer lots of suggestions, but just to give people a sense of what someone who commandeers this massive yoga movement does on a daily basis as a mom, as a co-founder, as a practitioner and teacher of Tai Chi and Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine and yoga and all of that. So how does all that look in a regular average Tuesday? <laughs> Just like everybody else, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, we all do the same things, right? I get up, I brush my teeth. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, no, I'll be serious. You scrape your tongue, your tongue <laughs> scraper. I can imagine what your day is like, actually, but go ahead. No, I lost my, I have to call Jasmine Hemsley because I lost my, I think Daisy <laughs> took it somewhere. She started using it as a toy. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now I have a really, probably a more predictable and regular schedule than I've ever had just because we're in one place or we're traveling. So I get up pretty early. I mean, having Daisy's great in the way of sleep, she goes to bed at eight. So then I go to bed at eight 30, <laughs> which is, I would never do that on my own. So that's great. So I'm up at five or five 30 and that just happens. And then I'm awake. And then I come up to our little studio here do some yoga with everybody. If we're doing yoga on the Strala app, hang around. I have some time with Mike usually just to talk about whatever is happening in our lives with our family, extended family or plans that we have with Strala. So we have kind of a natural meeting every day over coffee as well. And then we kind of divvy up the day. So he's with her in the morning and then he gives me up until as long as I need, but I'll usually take around till lunchtime to do videos, to do my own practice, to do projects, to have meetings, to do whatever I want to do, whatever I need to do. And then we switch and he does whatever he wants to do. And then we hang out as a family and go to the pool or go to the playground or whatever. And then it kind of continues at nighttime. If I have other things to do, I'll come back up here and do some more things before bedtime. And I don't really have a stop time at the end of the day, but I have enough breaks and enough ease in my day that I can kind of come back and forth to it whenever I need to. How long have you been married now? Since 2008. So <laughs> <laughs> Mike is always so 14, mad at me. 14 yeah. years. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> so what are, yeah. what's this, what are the three keys to success? I don't know. <laughs> in, 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 in marriage. <laughs> in your marriage. In my marriage. Gosh. Well, for Mike, this is funny because we have a little bit of a, everybody has a little funny relationship, but, but for me, I let him do what he wants to do in terms of spending his time in a way, which is, that's something that I have to try to do. Otherwise I'd be like, we're doing this, then we're doing this, then we're doing this, then we're doing this. <laughs> so if he wants to go to Vermont to see his friends for a week. You know, he goes and does that and he gets in the car and he drives and he's gone. And if I'm not being good, Tara, I would be like, oh, hell no, you're not doing that. <laughs> so, so I, I give him that. I don't give it to him. I, I realize that that's healthy and important to allow the other person to do whatever it is that they need to take care of themselves, which is kind of cool because then the more I'm, less up in his business about all of that, the more he does these wonderful things, not just for himself, but for me. He goes on a bike ride, he disappears, he comes back, he has a lot of energy. He'll take Daisy to the playground and be like, I know you just want to read a book this afternoon. You know, He'll have all of this freed up space. So that's really something that I kind of learned from him probably telling me that he's just going to go and take care of himself. <laughs> what about business-wise? Your three keys to success that you've learned over the years? I think consistency for sure. Just doing it. You're such a beautiful example of just doing the thing that you're doing forever. <laughs> just continuing <laughs> to do it. And for me, I, I think with you as well, you enjoy doing it. There's a part of it that's 
a bit of effort to show up and do it. There's a labor in the love, you know, (laughs) it's actually work, but (laughs) knowing the reason why I'm going to go and do another class, or I'm going to go and put another training on the schedule in Berlin, or I'm going to go to Miami and do a workshop, knowing the reason why I want to do that and continuing to move forward and do those things, I think is a real key to just moving forward in the purpose and the project that I'm doing. Do you have another book in the works? I think so. I can't quite seem to find a home for it yet. <laughs> so we'll see. You know, the see. problem is I, I found myself a really good literary agent, like a really good one. Before I was just scrapping everything together. I would meet a publisher and get a deal. I would, you know, just meet somebody randomly and get mm-hmm. something. But now it's like it's a serious thing. And that's a good thing. But also it's no Tara, you have to do the steps. <laughs> So I'm in the middle of these steps and this process that I haven't done to do the other books that I've written so far. So I'm excited about it because I've usually just kind of gotten able to do a book pretty consistently all the time. And it's just become part of my life. I go here, I do a book, I go here. It's something that I just part of me. It's just, I have a book coming out of my pocket, (laughs) but now it's, you know, I think in a good way, a lot more purposeful and on purpose. So yeah, I have a topic mm-hmm. I'm thinking about. So we'll see. How do you think about success these days? Personally, for me, like without the Strala business and everything, I think about success as having energy, being healthy, having my mind clear and not busied up with crossed wires and things like that. So that's my personal success feeling. And then for our business with Strala, it's sort of this, everything's always been wonderful and great, but Mike and I always have this meeting and it kind of comes to this every few times a year of, should we be doing everything completely differently? So (laughs) we know everything is good and everything is wonderful, but we still always kind of keep this open mind of, should we be working with more outside people? Should we be headed in a different direction? Should we be doing this or this? Would that change our lives? What do we really want? And it's interesting because a lot of our mutual friends do things in a completely different way. They have these big offices and teams and they raise funding and there's this exit strategy and this goal. And we've never been like that at all. It's just been us doing this and gathering people along the way. And it's just kind of worked out enough where we can continue. So I think success for Strala is that everybody involved feels happy about it and supported, mm-hmm. but also there's always door number, whatever that might happen at some point along the way. <laughs> okay. And final question, if you could go back and give young 21, 22, 23-year-old Tara a word of wisdom, what would you whisper to her in her dreams? Oh my gosh. I think I would say whatever you said to me at that event. I don't know what it was, but the (laughs) feeling was, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? And, you know, pay attention to what you're doing and how you are doing it, I think would be really kind of cool. Well, I appreciate you sharing 
so vulnerably with my audience. At this point in the conversation, I'd like to loop back around to your earlier days, your childhood interest, which you said was dance. And I've never been a dancer. I've been to several dance classes. And one of the most embarrassing experiences I've ever had in my life was going to Broadway dance studio and taking a modern dance class. And I was the only guy in the class, only straight guy in the class. (laughs) Anyway, there was one part where we had to we had like the soul train line type of situation where we had to like <laughs> dance solo from one end of the room to the other end of the room and, and like, Oh my gosh, do our own thing and break it down. And wow, my best friend shows up because I was there with his wife and he saw the whole thing. And it was just, it was just so embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> to this day. That's like the most embarrassing thing. I just, I was just dying inside. Anyway, from what I gather, you know, dance is about principles, but then a lot of fluidity. And within those principles, you can pretty much do anything. Just like with music, 12 notes. Yeah. Every song we've ever heard is composed of those same 12 notes. Mm-hmm. And every movement is composed from those movement principles. And so I feel like that's what you're doing now with your specific approach to yoga is getting a little bit away from the doctrine around it and just giving people the principles and saying, okay, take these and create or curate the experience that works best for you. And then you can take that from the mat to whatever else is happening in your life to make your life experience better as well. So I don't know if that resonates, but just want to acknowledge you for all of the consistency that it took <laughs> from that moment to this moment. Cause I, I know what it's, what it's like, you know, having to show up over and over and over and it's not for the fainted heart. <laughs> so <laughs> So thank you so much for going on that journey and for recognizing your calling and for having the courage to follow through on it, which is a big deal. And and I'm happy to call you a friend and I look forward to seeing you again and getting one of your warm Tara smiles, hugs. (laughs) Oh, you're the best. See you soon. I hope. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Tara Stiles. If you are not already, make sure you follow Tara on social media at Tara Stiles. That's T-A-R-A-S-T-I-L-E-S. And you can also follow Strala Yoga at Strala Yoga, S-T-R-A-L-A-Y-O-G-A. You can also grab a copy of her most recent book, Clean Mind, Clean Body. Everywhere books are sold. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to the show, we've got an incredible archives of past interviews with other luminaries like Ed Milet, director Ava DuVernay, spoken word artist Saul Williams, chef Marcus Samuelson, and so many others who share how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search interviews by subject matter at lightwatkins.com slash show, where you'll see a drop-down menu of past episodes that are categorized by specific subjects. So if you want to hear more episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or people who've overcome financial struggles or people who've navigated health challenges, you can get all of that at lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also watch these interviews on my YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube 
Search Light Watkins Podcast. You'll see it all there. And then finally, if you are interested in the raw, unedited version of these episodes, I post the raw audio in my Happiness Insiders online community. And if you like hearing mistakes and false starts and chit chat at the beginning and the end of every episode before we officially start the episode, then you can listen to all of that by joining my online community at thehappinessinsiders.com. Not only will you have access to those unedited versions, but you'll also get access to my 108 day meditation challenge. And there's a 108 day movement challenge, as well as other challenges and masterclasses to help you cultivate happiness within. One way to support this show is to leave a rating or a review for the podcast, which you can do really quickly, especially if you're listening to this on the Apple podcast app. Just look down at your device, click on the name of the show, Light Watkins Show, and then you'll see about five or six past episodes. Scroll down past those. You'll see a space with five blank stars. If you really like this episode or if you like the podcast in general, click the star all the way on the right and you've left a five-star rating, which is awesome. If you want to go the extra mile and leave a review and just write a sentence or two about what you particularly like about this podcast, then that would be a great way to help us become more searchable when people are looking for new podcasts. And of course, the more searchable we become, the more likely we will be sticking around for a very long time. So if you want us to stick around for a long time, it would really, really help out if you could just take the 10 seconds to leave a rating or a review, because that's how Apple determines which podcasts people are actually listening to and enjoying. So thank you very much for that. And otherwise, I hopefully will see you back here next week with another story about somebody just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition. It's so important. Keep following your heart. Keep taking those leaps of faith in your own life. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.